0: good morning how's everyone doing <clears throat> so if you have your bibles open up to uh geez let's just say romans uh, we're going to be all over the map this morning but we'll start off in romans um so here here's what we're doing if you're new or if, if you're just curious Um, Typically what we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we go through that book of the Bible until we finish it. We don't rush through it. We really try to understand what's going on and the culture, what's going on in that day, what's going on, what does the author really mean, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we're in the process of teaching through the book of Luke, which is going to take us about two and a half years just to get through. Uh, but we've paused, and about every August we will pause to stop and and consider and pray through what does it look like for us to be the church. So um, for the next, well, last week and then this week and two more weeks, um, we've just simply titled the series, We Are the Church. Um, so what does it look like to be the church? Who is the church? What is the church? Uh, because it's, it's one of those things, especially in the South. I mean, I've had, um, geez, my wife and I have probably had four or five conversations this week just about the theology of church. What does it mean? What does it look like? What does it act like? What is the church? And so um, one of the earliest things about the church that really struck me, or maybe not earliest, but one of the most um, life-changing things. I was reading a book called Total Church by a guy named Steve Timmis and Tim Chester. I mean, basically what they're doing is they're, they're pastors over in Europe that are writing back to the pastors in America and saying, listen, if you don't think that what's going, what's happening in Europe in the local church is going to happen in America in the next 10 to 20 years, uh, you've been misled. You're off. To, like, it's going to happen to you. And here's what they mean. If you poll an average millennial in Europe, in the U.K., uh, tell me one time you're going to go to church. You're going to walk into a church building. Just give me, give me one time. Uh, they, ca- they can't tell you. Not for a wedding, not for a funeral, not for a church service, um, not for a graduation. I mean, when I was a youth pastor in Gainesville, our high school graduation was inside of a church building. Uh, they, just, they can't answer. There's just a, I don't know. I, I can't give you a time that I would be in a church building. And so that's where we are. I mean, maybe a little early, uh, but you've probably already seen this with some of your friends, with some of your neighbors, um, that the importance of church just seems to be going downhill, right? I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. We know this. We've experienced this. The friends that we grew up going to church with, uh, probably half of them statistically aren't going to church. Here's some statistics about millennials. Only 2 in 10 Americans under 30 believe attending church is an important or worthwhile endeavor, That's an all-time low. Only 2 out of 10 millennials think that attending church is is good. Now, 59% of millennials raised in a church have dropped out. We've probably already seen that, and I've seen statistics higher on that one. 35% of millennials have an anti-church stance, believing the church does more harm than good. Now, let that one just kind of soak in for a second. 35% of millennials have an anti-church stance, Senate, or anti-church statement. They believe the church has done more harm than good. Now, if you know anything about statistics, I mean, you can go look Mark Twain's quote up about them, uh, but here's what's happening. That statistic is growing. It's not shrinking. That the church is more, is getting more and more bad press than good press. 35% have an anti-church stance. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to outline. That's why we're here to discuss what is the church actually. Because I would argue, and I don't know this, but just from my experience, I would argue that if you polled, if you actually had a conversation with these 35% and said, what is the church? Tell me about your church experience. What happened in the church? Um, They wouldn't give you a biblical definition of what the church is. And probably what would happen would be they've been hurt by the church, they've been wounded by the church. Something has happened within the walls of the church that has pushed them away. And so what we're trying to do for the next couple of weeks is just look biblically. This is here's what's gonna happen this morning. There's gonna be a ton of scripture a ton of scripture and it should be that way. I'm not trying to build theology of the church based off what I think or what I believe. And we're constantly going to the scripture. What is the church? Who is the church? Where is the church? Um, So there's gonna be, there might be some note cards around you. If not, there's some welcome cards. If I'm gonna be moving quick, we're not gonna stop and flip to every scripture. Uh, But if you wanna write them down, please do if you want these notes, please let me know. Because I want us to all be on the same page of what the church actually is. The other part about this morning, is that it's going to be more of, um, I think I only have one story in here. I love to have fun and joke around and tell funny stories about this and that and blah, 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 blah. Uh, Just to be honest, I don't know that I have time. Um, Typically, my sermons are like four pages, which is about 40 minutes. This morning I have nine pages. So you don't want me to tell funny stories because it would take too long and we'd be here for two hours. We good? We good? Okay, so uh, last week we read this quote by a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who's the prince of preachers, uh, was this massively famous preacher um, in England, would preach upwards to 10,000 people, just a fascinating character. And in one of his sermons, here's what he said about the church. Uh, I'll just read it while Kyle gets that. Um, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would have never joined at all. At the moment I did join, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been perfect church after I had become a member. Did y'all catch that? So even if I would have found the perfect church, my imperfection would have ruined the church. So don't look for a perfect church. Still imperfect as it is, it's the dearest place on earth. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people, the church. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony of God would be lost to the world. As I've already said, the church is faulty and that's no excuse for you not joining it. If you are the Lord's, if you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back. For the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need help that they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is a nursery for God's weak children where they are nourished and grow strong. It is a fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family." Now, Spurgeon said this in 1891, and I still think that's as true today as it was then, the church. And so over the next couple weeks, uh, I'm going to start the sermon with the same five points to make sure that we're always on the same page. And so if you were here last week, this is going to sound familiar. If you come next week, this part's going to sound familiar because we have to break out the theology of the church. Um, so here's how we do it as, a, as the branch, and we're going to kind of work through this this morning. But here's who we are. Um, the branch, we exist— by God's glory, for God's glory, to make disciples, equipping them, the disciples, to know, believe, and obey Jesus as a gospel-centered community living on mission. So that's our big statement. And so as the next couple of weeks, we're just going to be exegeting our way through what this means for us. And, and let me just say this. Um, this is a way. This isn't the way. Are you all tracking with that? This is the way we feel like the Lord has led us to lead this church But we're not saying, we're not being dogmatic about it that every church must do things exactly how we do it. No, that's ridiculous. This is just the way that we felt God has led us through the scriptures, but we would never say that's, well, rarely would we say that's stupid, that's ridiculous. If we see sin, yes, we might call that out, but if it's just a different approach, that's neither here nor there. Um, so here's a couple of ways that we need to understand church. Um, defining the church is, in the Greek is the word ekklesia. So you see this word 140 times plus in the New Testament. 140 times. So they explain the church 140 times in the New Testament. Here's what it never means. It never means a building. Ever. Now, we're kind of the semantics police around here because here's what people often say. And this is probably what you said this morning. Hey, get up. We've got to go to church. We got to get ready. We got to go to church. We're going to be late for church. We've got to get to church. Where does your church meet? But if we want to be true to the Greek, the Ekklesia means a group of called out ones. The ones that Christ has called out, the ones that got us saved, that is the church. It's never a building. So this is just the Parks and Rec gym. We rent this. They're going to play pickleball tomorrow. There might be guys playing basketball here in this afternoon. This, this is nothing special about this place. What's special is the gathering of the church in one building. So we don't go to church. We are the church. And we start understanding that mental, the mental shift that comes from that understanding is drastic. That if you are the church, there's ownership that's taking place. There's a conviction that's taking place. You are part of it. So you can't stand back and critique it because that's who you are. If you just go to church, it's something that you can shop around, you can be consumeristic about. Well, that church didn't meet my need, and I would rather do this a little differently, so I'm going to go find a church that's built for me. The church is not Burger King, okay? You cannot have it your way. That's not what the biblical definition of the church means, looks like, or acts like. You are called to be a part of the church, a group of called-out ones. And so we can see in Acts 2, 42 through 47, the first real description of what the church is and, and how the church acts. And here's what's happening it's crazy. They had everything in common. So this, this group of called out ones, the church, they were doing everything together. If anyone had a need within them, they were selling everything they had and said, no, no, it's yours. You can have it. Let's, let's be together. Let's do this thing together. They were eating in each other's homes. They were hanging out. They are going and sitting under the apostles' teaching. Uh, that was the church. And here's just kind of my conviction as I've been going through this. The church was spreading like wildfire in that day because people actually acted like the church. They had the number one thing in common, which was Christ and him crucified, That's what held them together. So they ate together. They did life together. There wasn't a need among them. They all pitched in to help out together. And Colossians kind of outlines a little bit more about the church. But here's what it says, and I'm going to jump back to this later. Uh, But he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn Of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17 is where we're at. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So here's what we have to understand Christ has leads this thing. Christ overruns this thing. One of the prayers that we prayed early on, um, and, and I hope we still pray this today, that if Christ is not leading this church, then let it fail. If Christ is not the lead guy, then let this thing fail, let it flop, because then, then what's the point of it? Are we really after God's glory or are we after our own? If we're just trying to grow this thing so that we can look good, so that we can get famous, so that we can whatever, then are we really actually doing what God has asked to do in planting a biblical church? Are we just making this about us? So Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the lead guy of the church. I'm just an idiot that blabbers up here. I never for a second want this to be built around me, my personality, the elders, our personality, the staff and their personality. We want it to be built around Christ in that alone. And one other thing, and I kind of joked around last week about this, um, Ephesians 5 kind of is going around, but he uses this imagery. Um, so I'll, I'll just read it. Don't worry about what you hear. It's just biblical. Ephesians five twenty two. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. <clears throat> for husbands is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and himself is Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, also wives submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the imagery that he's trying to use is that we are, as a church, married to Christ. So as husbands love and serve their wives, they protect their wife. That's what Christ is doing for us. And I said last week, and I'll say again, um, I have a bunch of friends, right? I mean, we can be friends. We can hang out. And you can say whatever you want within any kind of context, and I'll still be your friend. But if you trash talk my wife, I'm going to pop you in the mouth before you knew what happened. We just can't be friends and you dogging on my wife the whole time. It's just not possible. How can we be friends? How can we love each other? How can we be in a relationship and you cannot stand my wife? But all too often we see this. I mean, I even, we had, my wife and I were talking to um, a good friend of ours a couple weeks ago, and she just made this statement, man, I just hate the church. And she said it as some like sanctification, like I'm so smart, I'm so wise, I just hate the church. And it was just like a dagger got dug. You hate the bride of Christ. You think Christ is okay with you saying that you hate his bride. You really think that's appropriate. You think that that's okay. And even more so, you think you're saying the mature thing, oh, the church is just, I just hate the church. I would love to show you what the Bible says about that. That the church is his bride. I think for us, one of the things that we've considered, and, and I hope that this just rubs off. There's not a lot of my behavior that I want to rub off on you, honestly, but I hope this one does. My wife and I have given everything for the church. Like, there's not a certain thing or singular thing that I think I believe in more than the local church. If there was, I would have gone and done it. Christ called me to ministry. and I know that, but I think the best way to that, for that to operate is to the bride of Christ, the, the church. We are all in on the church. Every, everything lives and dies. There's no plan B. Do pay church ministries we can, under the authority of the local church, I believe in, but again, the local church comes first. That is the bride of Christ. There's no Plan B. So you look at all that happened yesterday. I mean, the tragedy that happened in Charlottesville, right? This is just this is absurd. This is ridiculous, but he, here's my stance. When I'm watching the news, when I'm understanding <clears throat> the white supremacy and the alt-right that still exists and how ridiculous that is, a lot of people jump to legislation, Trump's got to fix this, blah, blah, which sure, God works through politics. I get that. We should pray for our leaders. I understand that. But Jesus is very clear. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God. The problem that happened yesterday in Charlottesville is not a lack of legislation. It's a soul issue. It's a heart issue. And that's why the church exists. So should we, yes, we should encourage the politicians to make better legislation, but we should not be naive to think that that's going to fix it all. What fixes it is the local church. It's God moving throughout his people. And so what we should be praying for, what we should be begging for, is more healthy local churches that are going to get into this alt-right. They're going to get into this white supremacy. That's what's going to change it. It's not going to be some politician with a stroke of a pen. It's going to be Christ moving through his local church. That's the answer, that is the solution to the problem. It's Christ, it's his church. So what we're doing here is nothing that we should be taking lightly. The gathering of the church is huge. So that being said, that's just kind of a brief uh, overview of what the church is, so who are we What does this look like for us? I think we might have it up here. If not, I can just blabber. Here we go. We exist, again, I'm going to read this again, by God's glory, for God's glory, to make disciples, equipping them to know, believe, and obey Jesus as a gospel-centered community living on mission. We are the Branch Church. And so there's a guy named Simon Sinek, um, wrote a book called Start With Why, has a 10-minute TED Talk, Start With Why. Uh, Whatever kind of learner you are, I would encourage you to go watch or read. If you're anything like me, 10 minutes sounds way better than six hours in a book. So just go watch the TED Talk. Um, Here's his big premise. Um, A lot of companies know what they do. If you imagine a bullseye, the very outside, what they do. Um, Some understand how they do it, but very rarely do we understand why. What keeps you up at night? What is that fire in your belly that, that keeps you going, that keeps you motivated? And so for us, as we start to outline who we are as a church. Why we exist, the core of it, this principle truth will never change. We exist by God's glory for God's glory. That's it. By God's glory, for God's glory. So I'm going to o- give a sh- quick overview of what that means. But if you want that more in detail, you can go listen to last week's sermon online. Um, this morning, because of our why, how, to make disciples, equipping them to know, believe, and obey Jesus. Next week will be the what as a gospel-centered community living on mission. And then the next week, well, the final week of this, will be um, what does the branch church look like and where are we going? Um, so we have a dream to plant a branch church church on every, in every major college town in the state of Georgia. So what does that look like for us moving forward? So here's where we have to stop, though, and just make sure we're all on the same page again. By God's glory, for God's glory. What does that actually mean? Uh, John Piper has a beautiful illustration um, that he uses a basketball um, and beauty. So if you were to explain what a basketball is, that's not too hard, is it? Right? If we explained, yeah, it's round. It's got some... Uh, like designs cut into it, it's about yay big, it fits into a basketball goal, it bounces, it's full of air, a basketball. So I could explain to you a basketball within, I don't know, a minute, 30 seconds, and then put a couple of different sports balls in front of you and say, pick the basketball. And if I did a good job explaining it, you're going to know which one on the basketball is. But if you say, explain to me beauty, it's going to be a little harder task, isn't it? There's some things that I see as beautiful that you probably don't, and vice versa. Beauty is harder to explain, but here's what we can do. We can point to beauty when we see it. We can be in awe of beauty when it comes before us. And so in the same way, when we use this word glory, what does that even mean? Can we really define it? We could try, but the easiest way to explain glory is to point out where we see it. So again, here's how John Piper explains glory. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. uh, Having many different forms or elements is what manifold means. So the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. So can we necessarily explain what that means? No, but we can point it out when we see it. We can point out God's glory being manifested in our lives. We understand it. And so here's here's what we mean when we say by his glory, that we exist by God's glory. There's a couple different things. Uh, One, we were created. So if it wasn't for God and his glory, his perfections, his manifold beauty, if it wasn't for him, would we even be here? Isaiah would say, no, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who I called my name, who I created for my glory. So the Bible is clear that we were created by God's glory. Ephesians 1 says this as well. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory and grace. So before the foundations of the world, he created us. He predestined us. He picked us to be his sons, his daughters, for his glory. So we were created. We would not be here if it wasn't for the glory of God. So the very foundational of we exist by God's glory Duh, like we, we would not be here. We would not be created. There would be no world. There would be no humans. We would not be made in the image of God if it wasn't for his glory. So quite literally, yes, we exist by God's glory. We're also saved by his glory. Isaiah 43 says this, I I am, it says I twice, I'm not stuttering. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. So I will forgive you of your sins for my name's sake. For my glory, I'm going to save you. For my name's sake, I'm going to send Christ to die for you. And this is explained in John 12. Um, This is Jesus in the garden. How is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Save me from this death. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glory. so I'm going to, Jesus talking, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die for the glory of your name. So we were saved, not because we were good, not because of anything like that, but because of God's glory. And we're also sustained. Um, the branch kind of comes, our name comes from John 15, where we are the branch, that he is divine, we're connected, that's how we work. And John 15:5 says that apart from him, we can do nothing. So do you guys ever see just a vine just kind of hanging out, growing apart from the branch? No. So the branch, the vine, they have to be connected. So if we're separated from Him, if we're separated from God's glory, uh, John 15 would say we can, we can do nothing. We can do no good. We cannot sustain ourselves except for the glory of God. So when we say by God's glory, what do we mean? That we, Yes, we were literally created, we were saved, and now we are sustained by His glory. So what then? What then do we do? Well, it's pretty simple. We live for God's glory. That if we understand at the root, at the core of who we are, that we would not have been created, that we would not have been saved, and we would not be sustained except for God's glory, the only obvious choice is then that we live for His glory. So it makes verses like 1 Corinthians 10, um, 31 make a whole lot more sense. So whether you eat or drink, do whatever you do for the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you're doing, just live for the glory of God. And this is where it starts to get a little cattywampus. You ever use that word? Cattywampus? Okay. If you can imagine the bullseye, what we often try to do is what Simon Sinek talks about, that we try to start on the out and work our way in that maybe one day we can get down to the core of it and we can actually live by God's glory. But what we're trying to do, and while we've, we have literally fought in, I don't know, if screamed, we have raised our voices as a team trying to nail this thing down to be the perfect semantic language to explain the church. And here's what we've done. By God's glory is not an accident. It is the first thing on purpose. Because if if we have any struggle with anything that we talk about from here, making disciples, equipping, living in community, living on mission, any of that, anything that comes up in our soul going, "Ah, I'm not sure about that, but I'll give it a shot. We need to go all the way back to the beginning. Do we understand that we're actually living by God's glory? We understand that we were created, that we were saved, and we were sustained by his glory. And if we lack anything, we don't work harder, we work our way backwards to that truth. It's only by Him, it's only by His glory that we are here, that we can stand, that we can talk, that we are saved, that we can sustain. It's only by that one truth. So we don't need to work harder or try harder. We need to sit and ponder and consider God and His goodness and His glory. And from that, we'll see attitudes and start to shift. So how then do we live for God's glory? We exist by God's glory for God's glory. What does that look like? Great question, because that's what I'm going to cover this morning. That was just the introduction. You guys good? You with me? Do we need to have like an intermission and shake it out a little bit? We're good? So I had a friend in college that got hit by a car. Um, And if you ever have one of those friends that would get hit by a car, uh, Kyle was the one that would get hit by a car. You know, not that Kyle, different Kyle. But he's just like, he's that guy. Like just picture in your mind, who of your friends would get hit by a car? It, It was him. Um, Now, Kyle got paid. I'm just saying, like, till he's dead, he got, like, have you ever seen those videos where guys try to jump out in front of police cars to sue, and it's ridiculous? Like, I've seen one where he jumps up to land on the hood, and the cop stops, and he just hits the ground. Uh, Like, that's not what Kyle did. Kyle got pummeled by a Georgia Southern bus. It was glorious. Awesome. Here's what Kyle happened though after this. I don't know if it was glorious, but it was pretty funny. Uh, Here's what happened. It doesn't matter what the conversation, what the context, anything. The fact that Kyle got hit by a bus came up in almost every conversation by Kyle. doesn't matter. I mean, we could see you talking about macaroni and cheese. Like, yeah, that's what it looked like when I got hit by the bus. Like, what are you talking about, limp and cheesy? Like, I don't understand. And it doesn't matter what conversation it came up in. Everything always led back to Kyle got hit by a bus. But it was always funny and we always laughed because we talk about things that changed our life, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. I talk about my kids a lot, sometimes good contacts, sometimes bad contacts. Why? Because it changed my life. I talk about my bride a ton. Why? Because she changed my life. She talks about me all the time. Why? Because I put her in counseling. Um, it doesn't matter what we do and what we talk about. We talk about the things that we love. We talk about the things that we enjoy. I can hang out with you for 30 seconds and figure out what you're passionate about. It's not a mystery. We talk about the things that we love. So when we get into this next part, to make disciples, if you have any background in church, here's, what's, here's probably what's welling up in you. Uh, here comes the guilt trip. I know, pastor. I know. I know. I know. Make disciples. I get it. I just, I just, I don't know. Just hadn't, hadn't started that process yet. It's, it's not a process. It's not, if we understand, again, if we work our way backwards by God's glory, for God's glory, the natural manifestation of that is to make disciples, is to talk about things that we enjoy. Talk about things that changed our life. There's, there's one story in Acts 4 um, where some of the disciples got called into the council because they were creating all this kind of ruckus. And here's their response. But Peter and John said to them, the ones that had pulled them in, Caiaphas, all those guys, "Um, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Acts 4.20. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. So these guys are saying, do what you have to do. Throw me in jail, throw me in prison, beat me, kill me, I don't care. Because here's the truth. I cannot stop to talk or stop talking about what I've seen and what I've heard. I saw Christ crucified. I saw him raised from the dead. He told me that when he defeats death, that means he's defeated my sin. I cannot stop talking about what I've seen and what I've heard. So do with me what you want. Kill me, that's fine. Throw me in jail, that's fine. Release me, I don't care because I cannot stop talking about it. I've I've seen it, I've felt it. I, I can't stop. So when we read what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Remember, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Remember that, that as you are going to make disciples, that's the closest intimacy we'll ever feel with Jesus because that's where he is. I love Henry Blackaby's quote, find out where God's at work and join him in it. Where is God most at work in the process of making disciples? Go therefore and make disciples. What does that mean? What does that look like? All of that, it's it's pretty simple. It's talking about what we love. If Christ is the answer to every problem, let's just talk about it. Let's explain it. We, I think, for me, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm the same way. I've seen this fleshed out in some of our lives in here. We just overcomplicate things so much. Have you ever heard of Occam's razor? It's a medical term. It's basically saying the most obvious answer is typically the right one. So as we're sitting, we want more knowledge. We want more information. We're not mature enough but the, the, the fire in our belly, that simple, most obvious answer is we just need to go do it. We just talk about what we love. We need to be like Kyle and work this into every conversation because it changed our life. We cannot stop talking about what we've seen and what we've heard. This is what it means to make a disciple. Here's Mark Dever. If you've never read anything about Mark Dever, you need to check him out. Here's what he says, two quotes about discipleship. To be human is to be a disciple. To be human is to be a disciple. Disciple meaning a learner or a pupil of Christ. God did not present Adam and Eve with a choice between discipleship and independence, but between following him and following Satan. Satan. We are all disciples. The only question is of whom. We are all disciples of someone. The question is of whom? We're all learning. We're all growing in something, someone. And Deborah would say it's either Christ or it's either Satan. There's, there's no in between. So we're all disciples. question is of whom? Here's what else he says. Discipleship is the universal human patterns of influence, modeling, and formation for the fame of Jesus. Let me read that one more time. Discipleship is a universal human pattern of influence, modeling and formation for the fame of Jesus. For the fame of Jesus. So here's where we are so far, the branch. Why we are here. We exist by the glory of God, for the glory of God, to make disciples, to make people, to make learners of Christ. That's why we exist. Now how do we do that? The next part of the sentence, will break that down. Do we equip you? So Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 would say that the, the role of the church, the apes, the apostles, apostles <clears throat> I'm going too fast. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers is to equip the saints, equip you for the works of the ministry. So how do we as a church make disciples? We equip you, church, for the works of the ministry. And what, do we, what are we trying to equip you in? To know, believe, and obey Jesus. So at the branch, again, this is our language, it's not the language. How would we quantify a disciple It's someone that knows, believes, and obeys Jesus in every walk of life? Someone who knows who Jesus is, who believes Jesus, and obeys Jesus. That is a disciple. That is a full pupil, full learner of Christ. If you know, believe, and obey Jesus. So let's, let's take this, I tried to find one perfect verse to explain this, I just, I just can't. So let's just look at the life of Peter. You know anything about New Testament? Peter was one of the prominent disciples that turned into an apostle um, after Christ's death. And here's, here's the journey of Peter. You have to understand a little bit of the context of Peter's journey. Peter was a Jewish man. They were waiting for the Messiah. So there's a bunch of rumblings when Christ had came. I mean, John the Baptist started out, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is not near, but it's it's here. God is here in flesh. His name is Christ. You need to repent. I'm preparing the way for him. So word was spreading about this Christ, the Messiah that was here. So when Jesus walks up to Peter and says, hey, you need to follow me. This was not some unknown language. The rabbis in that day, the way that they would pick their disciples were the same way. So Peter knew who this Jesus guy was. He had an idea, at least. And so when he said, you need to come follow me, he said, okay, I'm going to follow you. But here's the question. Here's where maybe I'm going to wreck some theology. When did Peter become a Christian? When did Peter officially become Christian? Christian because about a year and a half to two years into Peter following Jesus um, you have this exchange between Peter and Jesus when Jesus is asking the apostles who do people say that I am what are you hearing about me give me some feedback Peter goes well uh, some say you're John the Baptist some say you're Elijah the prophet okay well Peter who, who do you say that I am that here's where the shift starts to happen because we have a bunch of knowledge, right? We we're knowledgeable about a bunch of things, but when knowledge turns into belief, it turns into something that we feel like inside of our bones. We feel that this knowledge is true. That's when things start to change, right? I mean, think about it. We all know that if we eat horribly, something bad's going to happen to us one day, but we continue to go through the Dairy Queen drive-through and get a mini truffle blizzard. Maybe that's just me. I just love those things. I know that's going to catch up. I know in my head that is not going to lead to healthy lifestyle later on in life. But when am I going to believe it? When am I going to feel It's when I'm sitting at the doctor and he goes, hey, I just want you to know you've got cancer. And it's because of a poor diet. So that knowledge then is going to turn into, oh, I felt that. Even though I I knew that to be true, now I actually feel it. I believe it. And at that point, I get to choose whether I'm going to be obedient or whether I'm going to keep walking in ignorance. So Peter had this moment where Jesus says, That's that's great. Some say this, but Peter, who do you say that I am? Take your knowledge and change it to a belief. And Peter goes, You're you're the Christ. You are the Son of God. I've heard you talk. I, I know enough about you. There's something different. I believe, I feel that you are the Messiah. Now, just because he proclaimed that, do you think everything in Peter's life was hunky-dory again? He's walking in full obedience because he believes, he feels that Christ is Messiah. No, right after that, he rebukes him because Jesus says, I gotta go die. And Peter tries to rebuke him, or or Peter cuts the guard's ear off in the garden, right? Or Peter denies Christ three times before Christ's crucifixion, right? But then we see just a few days later Peter, stand up and preach and proclaim, be obedient to who Christ is, and thousands of men and women are saved. So we talk about this progression of knowing, believing, and obeying. A lot of us in here, I mean, I I don't have to do it. If we raise our hand, a lot of us have grown up in church. We, We know. The problem is that we don't believe. We don't feel it. There's no angst in our soul about who Christ is and what he's asked us to do once we start wrestling with this feeling okay God now what I I believe it I can feel it in my bones what then do you want me to do then that's that's obedience that's the obeying part no believe and obey Jesus that's what we're that's how we're trying to equip you to be a disciple So if you're anything like me, that that sounds great, that's okay, cool, put it on a bumper stick or whatever, but what does that really mean? Like that's kind of ambiguous. that's kind of ethereal, what does it really mean to know, believe, and obey Jesus? Well, here's how we define it, and they're conveniently on the banners in your front. If you want to take a look over here and take a look over here and there's a safety exit over here, here's where we're going to go. Here's the first thing that we want you to know, that that Jesus is everything, That, that Jesus is everything. And I read this earlier, but I'm going to read it again in the context of Jesus being everything for us. Here's Colossians 1 again. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Here's here's Jesus. Here's how he's everything. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. Everything was created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is, I I just don't think that we can read this any other way. I think the purpose of Colossians is to show us that Christ is everything. So before we move on to um, your story matters and people matter, it's the same thing with God's glory. If we struggle with anything, we need to work on the knowledge that turns into belief, that Christ is enough, that Christ is everything. Apart from him, there's nothing. We can't do anything apart from Christ. Jesus is everything. That's what I want us to know as a church. That's what I want you to know as a disciple, that Jesus is everything. And gosh, there's so many real world examples that we can go into for here. Whatever, your biggest, whatever makes you most worry or most fearful is probably your idol. What fears you the most, what makes you the most worried It's probably your idol. So the first step is to knowing that Jesus is everything. He's above that. He's bigger than that idol that you have. Jesus is everything. And if we start to understand that and we hold his words literal for us, then we would read something like Acts 1-8 and we would understand that that if Jesus is everything, then then I believe that my story matters. Acts 1-8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. You will tell people what you have seen and what you have heard. And now here's a big shift that's taking place in in the church. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, there was a a classification called the professional Christian. So here's what that means. Uh, After we hear the gospel proclaimed, we always respond uh, through worship, through communion, and through tithing. We respond back to Jesus. So over here, um, there's these two coffee cans that you can tithe, you can give your money back to God. But here's what tithing turned into I don't really have to be Jesus's witness. I'm just going to give to the church and let the pastors do it. I don't really have, like my story doesn't really matter as much as the guy on stage. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to write a big check. And if I ever need someone to know about Jesus or if one of my friends are in the hospital, I'm not really capable of praying for them or leading them to Jesus. So here's what I'm gonna do. Um, I pay that pastor's salary anyways. So he deserves, I deserve him to come help me out in this situation. Because I'm, I'm paying him, I'm paying that church staff to do this. Now it seems kind of comical, but if you have any background in church, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'm going to pay, I'm going to give so that their story matters, but my, I'm not really capable. My story doesn't actually matter. The only problem with that is the Bible. That Matthew 28 was to his disciples Not to anyone special, not to anyone famous. Go and make disciples. That command is for everyone. Acts 1-8 is for everyone. All of us have a story that matters. That if we really want to see our landscape change by God's glory, it's going to take all of us. That there's no spectators within the church world. That we're all called to make disciples. And as a church, we're just trying to equip you in that that your story actually matters. So here's one way that we manifest this out. If you ever see a baptism here at the branch, here's what's happening. Whoever led that person to Christ is the one baptizing them. Because here, here's the beautiful thing that's taking place. Yes, we have a baptism. We have a story where someone uh, was an enemy of God. Now they're a friend of God. That they were dead in their sins and trespasses. Now they've been made alive together in Christ. And we're going to celebrate that and we're going to rejoice that. Because a sheep has come home. Salvation has taken place. But just as important is the other story in that water. I was terrified to tell the, my friend about Jesus. I was terrified to even open my mouth. But because of what I'd seen and what I'd heard, I, I just had to. I had to be there. I had to love them. I had to support them. So I, 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 just, I just did it. And it had to have been because of the grace of God that that person came to know Christ. Because I stuttered my whole way through. I didn't know what I was saying. But I was obedient. And now I get to stand here in this water and baptize my friend who is now a believer. Your story matters. We're not going to take that away from you. We're not going to say, hey, thanks for doing the work. Now, I'm ordained, so uh, let me baptize this person. No. No, we're going to celebrate both of those stories in the water. That your story actually matters. So if we believe, if we know that Jesus is everything— and we believe, we feel it, that we have a story that matters, that our friends, that our family, that our neighborhood is not gonna come to Christ unless we go out and we're his witnesses and we make disciples, then the obvious next step is that we actually believe that people matter. We actually believe that people have souls that are around us and that hell is a real place, and if we don't go, then who will? Here's what Romans 10 says about that. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news, right? Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him who they've not believed? How will they believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? We are the sent ones. We are the ones. How are they supposed to come, how are they supposed to cry out to God for salvation if they've never heard? If we don't value that people matter. So here's just a couple ways that, that biblically we can look at that. Uh, we can look at it because creation says so, that we're all made in God's image, um, that Jesus said so, that's why he came to die, and that the cross says so. So, so what does that really look like? If, if we know that Jesus is everything, if we believe that our story matters and we're going to live out that people matter, here's just a couple ways that um, we aren't distracted by people's sin. Because we all have sin we all have brokenness we all come from a background that when we see sin we don't walk away from it we walk towards it that we love people with no agenda don't you love when you get those phone calls of someone trying to be buddy buddy but they know you just, they're just going to ask you for something i mean there was a span i guess i was probably i don't know two three years out of high school where every acquaintance i'd ever had hey man how's college going Hey, you're doing good. How's your family? Everything okay? Well, Hey, listen, I just want to tell you about this new business venture that I'm in. It's a pyramid scheme, man. Go to college. Stop, stop this. Go get a, go get a job. Quit trying to sell me on this pyramid scheme. And I probably got 30. I mean people that I'd never talked to in high school were now my best friends because they wanted to sell me something. We know when someone has an agenda. So we love people without an agenda. We take the first step with people. I think this is huge. That Christ, I mean, we could, we don't have time. If we could go through this, one of the biggest theology uh, points that we need to understand is that God initiates everything with us. That God initiates everything. He created us, he initiated that. He loves us, he initiated that. He sent his son to die for us, he initiated that. Everything is him coming after us. I said it last week. I love the imagery. C.S. Lewis calls it the Holy Ghost towns, that he's chasing us down. He's initiating. So then if we are going to go, if we're going to be like Christ, then we are the initiators, that we get messy with people, Uh, that we just don't keep people from afar, that we're willing to get into their mess, to get into their situations, to love them through it. That we are genuine. I think, again, we don't have time, but if we could really go into why millennials are leaving the church, the biggest reason is that we're not genuine. That we're not real. That we're not honest about our struggles and what we're going through and and who we are. It's just not what we do. But if we believe people matter, we believe that God has saved our story, then we should be honest about what we struggle with and where we're coming through. And the last one is that, that we just don't give up on people. Christ has never given up on us. This is, this is probably one of the ones I have a hard time with. Christ never gave up on me. Christ never gave up on you. He pursued, he loved, he ran after. So we need to have that same mindset of Christ. If we know, believe, and obey Jesus, then we don't give up on people. We pursue and we love no matter what. It doesn't mean that we don't let them wander like the prodigal son, but we don't lose hope that Christ can and will save them. So now that we're starting to kind of understand a little bit about who we are as a church, we always have to go back to by God's glory. Because of him, because of his glory, we know, believe, and obey Jesus. Because of him, we make disciples. <clears throat> but what I'm, what I'm just deathly afraid of, if I'm honest, is that this is going to come across as a legalistic idea. Here's what you need to do to become the church. Here's what you need to do to be a member here. Here's what it looks like. You've got to do this and this and this. If you're not existing by God's glory, for God's glory, to make disciples, equipping them to know, and believe, and obey, you are not saved. If you just give a little bit more money, maybe you will be. You need to try harder. I, I, I'm just terrified of that. I, I, I don't want that to be the message. What I want, what I want, my biggest desire is a group of called out ones. That everything we do, we always go back to because of God's glory. Like everything I am is just an overflow. Of God created me. God loves me for his glory. God saved me for his glory. God is sustaining me for his glory. So all I can do is live for his glory. And how do I best do that? I tell everyone else about his glory, which looks like making disciples. What, what brings me most joy is God's glory. And how to bring others most joy is teaching them to know, believe, and obey Jesus. That's, that's just what it looks like. I'm not trying to work or I'm not trying to, yes, there's discipline built in, but what's built in the most is I just cannot understand, I cannot fathom that by his glory he would die for us. W- why would he even do that? Why would he even spare Noah in the flood? Just kill us all and get us out of here. Because we've cursed at you and we've spit in your face. We've neglected you. We've turned our back on you. But for whatever reason, by your glory, you said, No, 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 I'm I'm pursuing them all the way to the point I'm giving my son to die for them. Because the best thing for them is my glory. So when we talk about making disciples, about no, believing, obeying Jesus, why we exist as a church, please hear me. And this is why we end with communion. This is not a to do list. This is a response list. If we understand God and his glory, then it's just a natural overflow of what we do. So I'm going to pray and and we're going to remember and we're going to celebrate this through communion that because of God and his glory, he sent Christ to die in our place. That we've got the bread that is the body. We've got the juice that is the blood. That by him, we have been saved for his glory. So if you're not yet a believer, man, I'd love to talk to you about that. Some of our team would like to talk to you about that but we would just respectfully ask that, that you leave this just for the believers because here's what we're doing. We're celebrating the fact that we were once not a people, but now we are because of his glory. That is who we are as the Branch Church. We exist by God's glory and communion is an easy way to see that fleshed out. So let's pray. God, we are humbled by your love for us Jesus, we don't understand it. Um, God, your glory would look like you saving us. That Your glory would look like you coming to earth and dying for us, Jesus. That's just not what... It just doesn't make sense. And so, Jesus, we pray that that would be the motivation of all that we do. God, that making disciples would just be a natural overflow of you and your glory. God, that we can do nothing apart from you and your glory, that we were saved, that we were sustained, that we were created by you and your glory. God, let us wrestle with that this morning. Do we really know you? Have you really captivated our heart, or do we just know a lot about you? Has there ever been a knowledge that leads to a deep feeling of belief in our souls that that requires an action? Are we just here working through the motions of what we think it means to be a Christian, what we think it means to be the church? So Jesus, we love you. God, but it's only by your glory that we can, because everything is by your glory and for your glory. So Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sustaining us. Thank you for allowing us to be part of the dearest thing on earth that you've created, your church, your body. As we go into a time of communion, Father, let us remember how good you are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.